as we continue our consideration of the biblical qualifications for the church overseer or elder, we'll be continuing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Before we read that, however, will you first turn in the Old Testament to the second chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 2, there are two brief passages I want to read here about a home that is not managed well. 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 to 17, and then verses 22 through 25 of the same chapter. We are in the time of the judges here, before the monarchy. Eli is the high priest over the tabernacle, which was at Shiloh. 1 Samuel 2, 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up. The priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. And reading now, beginning at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord desired to put them to death. And now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, 
not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that we would be instructed by it. We recognize and confess to you our own blindness and stubbornness and slowness of heart to believe. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, clear our minds and enable us to see the glory of your church and the Lord in the church. Grant this, we pray, through Jesus, our Redeemer and King. Amen. I want to draw your attention to the Apostle's guidance here in his first letter to Pastor Timothy, chapter 3. He has been painting, as we've seen over the last few weeks, he's been painting for Timothy a portrait of the man who might capably serve as an overseer or elder or shepherd of the Lord's church. This man, according to the Holy Spirit, must first be above reproach and then also the husband of one wife. But equipped by the Holy Spirit in these ways for the work, there are, in addition, many other things that he's got to be, got to know, got to do. And so very clearly, although some men may aspire to the office, this office of elder isn't for just anyone. Neither is the office of elder something that a man can uh, do anonymously or behind the scenes or from his uh, computer keyboard. An elder's work begins at home, but it certainly doesn't end there, and it can't end there. Overseers in the Lord's house can be likened in some ways to the tribal chiefs of Israel back in the days of the Old Testament. Those long lists of men, you may remember, men with such hard-to-pronounce names, those, these overseers of Christ's church, likewise, stand before their own people. The word uses in verse, uh, the word Paul uses here in verse 4, translated as one who manages in our NASB, the word actually means this very thing. He stands before his own household. He's right up front, right where everyone can see. He's leading them. He's representing them. He's giving an account for them within the greater commonwealth of Israel and the household of God. Men with responsibilities like this really ought to do it well. We really ought to do it well. 
Now, you've already noticed by now that I've skipped down through a number of character qualities in verses 2 and 3 to bring us to verse 4. This isn't because those intervening qualities aren't important by any means, but merely because the management of his own household is so closely connected with a man's marital status, which we covered last week. We'll come back to these other character qualities in due course. But today we take a hard look at the man's home life and the management of his household for the glory of God and the blessing of those who live there with him. Now, a single man, of course, has responsibilities for the running of his own household. There's no question about that. A single man has got his work to do. He's got bills to pay. He's got appointments to keep, meals to prepare, laundry to keep up with. Just like the married man. He's got to be on time for things. He's got to live within a budget. He's got to manage all the other resources at his disposal. What the single man doesn't have is a wife to cherish and to sometimes have to figure out. He doesn't have children to raise. He doesn't have the responsibility to administer a father's discipline wisely for the kingdom of God. A single man isn't up at night with a crying baby or bringing down a child's fever. A single man isn't necessarily giving serious thought and effort to their education and other important aspects of their future inheritance. The married man with a wife and children and maybe parents or others living with them as well, he is, as the need requires, he's doing all these things. He has a much fuller plate than the average single man. And it ought to be of interest to the church to know how he's doing, how he's managing. Because if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's a very good question. I'd like us to consider the management of a man's own household under three main headings. First, the biblical pattern for home management. And then secondly, the richly illustrated problem of the mismanaged home. And finally, the priority of the home in a Christian man's heart. It's sad that I have to say this, but the times in which we live demand it. There is a distinct biblical pattern for home management. There is. The local color and shading of our various home lives is always going to be conditioned by the personal temperaments and maturity and other circumstances in play, but we don't have the liberty completely to reimagine and redraw what a home is supposed to look like. For instance, in a biblically patterned home, there's an equally yoked team of one man and one woman pulling together 
not in two different directions, pulling together. That's the way it was in the beginning. And in the biblical patterned poem, children have fathers. And those fathers live at home with them and their mothers. Fathers love their wives and their children, protect them, body, soul, and spirit, protect them, provide for them. And as I said a moment ago, they stand before them in a number of important ways, including teaching them, shielding them from whatever might hurt them, and setting before them a godly example. And this last point is exactly why I call this a biblical pattern. God's provided us with an example to follow. So regardless of what the U.S. Supreme Court or anyone else may say, the general outlines of marriage aren't a matter of personal preference. Marriage isn't just whatever society says it is. If we're going to call it a marriage and not just multiple people who happen to live under the same roof, then it conforms to a distinct pattern, a prescribed route to be followed. A Christian man and woman on their wedding day, being wise, wanting to start out their life together on the right foot, they bear in mind that they're not the ones who thought this up. And they don't make up the rules for this marriage as they go. The divine institution of marriage has been around for a long, long time. Certainly long enough for some longitudinal studies and reflection. Long enough to have learned that the ancient paths, where the good way is, those ancient paths work. They work. Obedience to God's law in the matter of marriage and home life tends to yield long marriages and happy homes, whereas deviations from that law tend to result sooner or later in some form, some degree of train wreck. God designed marriage. God designed the home. As far back as the Garden of Eden, back when everything was still very good, you remember. The one thing discovered not to be good was that the man was alone. It's not good for this man, Adam, the very image and likeness of God. It's not good that he be alone. That's not something Adam decided. God did. Because the triune God within his own being isn't alone. Before the world was, God himself was in a loving relationship with like-minded persons. Father, Son, Spirit. And man created in his image must have some way to reflect that love 
that joy of relationship with someone who corresponds to us, someone suitable for us. I want you to think about this expression that Paul uses in verse 15 and elsewhere in his letters. He says that he's writing to Timothy, and this is really his reason for this letter, the whole letter. He says, I write, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the church is the household of God. But in what ways is it the household of God? What are the points of similarity between the biblical church and the biblical family? Well, let's give that some thought. Like the family, all the church members are bound together by covenant, aren't we? We have covenant responsibilities toward one another. In a family that's called the covenant of marriage, by which the growing family shares, among other things, many other things, a common name. But the church, too, is bound together by covenant. And like a family, together we, the church, have one father. Our father has one son, from whom, from all eternity... He selected a bride. That bride has become the mother of us all, inasmuch as by her preaching the gospel, down through the ages she brings forth children by grace through faith. We have a family table that we gather around periodically. The Lord's table. We have a common inheritance that passes first through the hands of the firstborn with whom we've been named fellow heirs. And by long immersion in these various gifts and means of grace, the household of God comes in time to share common traits that stem not so much from genetics as from common training and a common culture, a common environment. These traits are an outward expression of God's holiness. It is the family likeness, a likeness to Christ that sets the church, the household of God, apart from the world. So there's a pattern for the management of a man's home. In his magnificent love and grace, God gives us that pattern in his own relationships. He illustrates the pattern, and we ignore that pattern at our own peril, as we see throughout the Bible in the profusely illustrated problem of the mismanaged home. The problem of the mismanaged home. I wonder if you've ever reflected on the frequency of family failure in the lives of the great men of the Bible. You really don't have to look very far to find badly mangled, mismanaged homes. Sadly, among fallen men and nations, 
they tend to be the rule rather than the exception. Think with me on this. In the very first family, the first child ever born into the world murdered the second one. His brother. Within six generations, men were taking multiple wives. The record of Noah's life, righteous Noah, the record of his life gives us a glimpse into the significant moral fault lines of his own family. The copious material that we have on the family lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those sons of Jacob, all of it's true, and none of it's especially flattering, which is an understatement. None of it's especially flattering as to their family lives. Eli's family, as we read, forfeited the high priesthood in the days of the judges because his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were such notorious rascals. And sadly, the character even of Samuel's sons, the prophet Samuel, his sons Joel and Abijah were such that the people begged for an end to the judges. They were begging for a king. So they wouldn't have judges like Joel and Abijah reigning over them. But once they had their king, did that king himself exemplify for the people what a man's family and a man's royal dynasty, in his case, what it ought to be? Did he carefully adhere to the law of Deuteronomy 17, 17, that a king not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away? The fact of the matter is that before King David left his first capital at Hebron after seven years there. David had taken at least seven wives, six of whom bore him children. And then moving his capital to Jerusalem brought him yet another wife, Bathsheba. And with her acquisition, the absolute disaster that was David's family was complete. Solomon brought family disaster to whole new levels with his 700 wives and 300 concubines, each with her own set of detestable idols. I suppose maybe you have reflected on this too as you have uh, read this in the scripture. I have wondered, do you suppose that a man with 700 wives and 300 concubines would even know the names of his own children? Would he even recognize them when he saw them? It's no wonder that as an old man, Solomon wrote so much on the lost opportunities and folly and vanity of life because he had made such a terrible mess of his own. But the problem of the mismanaged home doesn't end with the Old Testament. The Samaritan woman at the well, you remember. 
to whom Jesus spoke in John chapter 4. She had already had five husbands, and the man that she was then living with wasn't her husband. The professing Christian family, Ananias with his wife Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they had issues of family conniving and duplicity that proved to be their undoing. And dear ones, I have skipped very lightly, actually, through the Bible on this stubborn human problem of the mismanaged home. There's so much more, and it's also wearying to tell. But before moving on from this problem of the mismanaged home, I would be remiss not to direct you for the encouragement of your own imperfect home and mine. Let me direct you to Paul's counsel to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, chapter 10. He's just been listening for that church, some of the great moral failures of Israel as they grumbled their way through the wilderness. And then after this listing of their faults and foibles, then he adds this. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. All of these family problems I've just gleaned for you from the pages of Scripture were likewise given to us as examples not to follow. Let's look for something better. Let's pray for something better. Work towards something better. For the children, for the coming generations that lie beyond this generation of children. For the peace and prosperity of the whole church. Let's keep our families from flying apart. Keep them together and blessed, not with a heavy hand, but, as Paul says, with all dignity. If your own home seems to be humming right along at the moment, as it should, we should give thanks, but nevertheless exercise vigilance and take heed lest we fall. If, on the other hand, you find your home life to be presently in some state of disrepair, some state of discontentment or unhappiness. Let's take heart that whatever our faithfulness to duty in the home, God is faithful. God is faithful. Let's take heart that he has all the answers we need for the proper management of our homes and that he freely offers those answers in his word. Now, if you've been listening with any level of interest to my first two main points, then this third main point probably won't do any more for you than put the whole matter to bed. Because if you've been listening carefully, then you already understand my third point. 
It resonates with you. I want to describe for you the priority of the home in a Christian man's heart. And I should probably say simply the Christian's heart because I don't want to leave the wives and mothers out of this. You are subject, the women, the wives, the mothers of God's people are subject to the same siren's song of our lost culture that we men are. The siren's song that lures us out of our homes and out there. Out into the more glamorous, lucrative world of business and career, promotions, adventure. The song that turns wives and mothers into practicing feminists and their little children into practicing orphans. But I speak today on the subject of a man's qualifications for elder. And I speak as a man who spent 27 years in the army chaplaincy, about a third of which was active duty time. And out of those nine years or so of active duty, I spent five years, all told, on three different continents deployed here and there, away from my family. And in some times, in retrospect, I ask myself, would I do it all over again? And that's hard to say. It's hard to say whether I would do it all over again that way. At the time, it seemed to be the best way to provide for, their, for my family's material needs. But then, after all, life is more than food, and the body than clothing. The simple fact is that children need their father, and their father needs them. A Christian man's home isn't just wherever in the desert he happens to pitch the tent. His home is where his family is. A sense of duty to country, a sense of duty to corporation may call us away from that family for a while, but it's a compelling sense of a higher duty that calls us back again and soon. There's work to be done there in the home. There always is. And it's not work that can be done or ought to be done on the margins of a man's life. It's work that constitutes the very center and purpose of it. It's been over 30 years now since I've been in combat. But I still remember that in order to strengthen and encourage one another, to fire up one another's fighting spirit, the men of my combat engineer unit in the first Gulf War used to say, the road home runs through Baghdad. What is it that drives men to do valiant things? What is it that drives men to vanquish the enemy? to find and help a wounded friend 
What is it that drives men to do the hard things? To get the job done, wash and maintain the equipment, get it back on the ship, put on their last clean uniform, and get back on the plane. What drives them? It's the road home. It may run through Baghdad, or it may run through your next business trip. But in everything you undertake out there for the glory of God, let the road home be first in your heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom and love that is evident, so evident in your giving us homes. We pray that your blessing would be upon our homes, that we would each understand the biblical pattern and make ourselves conformable to it within our homes, that men may love their wives and their children, that all of the duties that your word ascribes and prescribes to us, to each member of the home, that we would be careful to observe it. We pray this because we know that in obedience is blessing. We thank you for your law, and not only your law, but the many examples you give us in your word, historical examples of those who have done well and those who have failed miserably. Grant that we will learn from them, pay attention to them, for our blessing and the blessing of our children. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.